a great truth. We don't like canceling. I don't like canceling, but uh, I am so uh, appreciative of the technology that God has for us to be able to record and to get the message out. And um, we looked around and we made a, a last minute decision. Uh, the subdivisions are still a mess and the roads are freezing over. And so we did not want our folks out on the roads tonight. Tonight we're going to be in Isaiah chapter number 19 to begin. And so if you have a Bible there, grab it and uh, open it to Isaiah. I'll read Isaiah 1 and 2, 19, 1 and 2, and pray, and then we'll begin our lesson for this evening. Isaiah 19, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1, The burden of Egypt, behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud, and shall come into Egypt, and the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. And I will set the Egyptians against the Egyptians, and they shall fight every one against his brother, and every one against his neighbor, city against city, and kingdom against kingdom. These last few chapters in Isaiah, we've been discussing the burdens that God has laid upon Isaiah. These are prophecies of judgment for these various nations, and they have been severe. This evening, we're going to begin by looking at the judgment upon Egypt. And so let's bow for prayer and ask God's guidance. Thank you, Lord, for your love, and thank you for your word. I do thank you for this amazing book of Isaiah. And Lord, because of its length, sometimes it's daunting. It's hard to keep our minds around it. And so, Spirit of God, would you lead us tonight as we look into this chapter, these chapters, and uh, give us what you have for us. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you will motivate us to serve you better because of it. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're following along in the outline, Roman number one, God pronounced judgment upon Egypt. <clears throat> God pronounced his judgment upon this heathen land. It would be swift as if he were riding on a cloud, verse one says. He would judge them for their wicked idolatry, which so permeated the country. The hearts of the people would melt at God's display of his wrath. God was angry at idolatry, whether it's God's people Israel or the heathen nations, those that worship false gods. It, uh, it brought him great uh, displeasure. And uh, so he's judging now Egypt because of their idolatry. Letter A, Egypt would be embroiled in civil wars, fighting amongst themselves. Our country knows something of civil war, and it could be disastrous. In verse 2, I will set the Egyptians against the Egyptians. Egypt had lost its powerful dominance by the time of this, this prophecy and had been plagued by the Assyrians. Internally, the nation became a chaotic mix of civil wars. No longer was that dominant nation uh, during the time of Moses uh, a world power. They had been decimated, eventually being divided into 42 districts ruled by 12 princes. Letter B, Egypt would flee to their false gods as God destroyed their plans. Verse 3, and the spirit of Egypt shall fail in the midst thereof. I will destroy the counsel thereof, and they shall seek to the idols, and to the charmers, and to them that have familiar spirits, and to the wizards. Of course, this is the occult. They are running to those in the occult, these, these false gods, these, these false spirits for counsel. Their internal struggles would exhaust them. 
leading, leaving them discouraged and hopeless. All the strategies that had worked previously had all failed. God was behind these failures. Their refuge would be to seek their idols and workers in the occult. Proverbs 21.30 says, There is no wisdom nor understanding nor counsel against the Lord. 1 Corinthians 3.19 and 20, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Here, Egypt, just like Israel, thought that they could run to their false gods, and these false gods could give them the strength they needed and somehow overrule what Jehovah God was doing. Let her see. Egypt would become ruled by a fierce king. Verse 4, And the Egyptians will I give over into the hand of a cruel lord, and a fierce king shall rule over them, saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Well, Egypt, history tells us, was threatened by the Assyrians and then defeated by cruel Nebuchadnezzar, then by Cyrus of the Persians. It's said that the yoke of the Persians was so grievous that the conquest of the Persians by Alexander may well be considered as a deliverance to Egypt, especially as he and his successors greatly favored the people and improved the country. Roman numeral two, the Nile, the Nile River would fail to supply sufficient water. Verse five, and the water shall fail from the sea, and the river shall be wasted and dried up. The mighty Nile River, which, which provided life for the entire region, would fail to rise to its customary height, allowing it to flood over the region. Yearly, seasonally, it would rise and then overflow its banks throughout the area and that would provide for the related industries there. A public record is kept at Cairo of the daily rise of the water at the proper time of overflow, namely August. If it rises to a less height than 12 cubits, it will not overflow the land, and famine will be the result. So also, when it rises higher than 16, for the waters are not drained off in time sufficient to sow the seed. Ezekiel 30, verse 12. I will make the rivers dry, and sell the land into the hand of the wicked, and I will make the land waste, and all that is therein by the hand of strangers, I, the Lord, have spoken it. Here, the word Lord is in all caps. This is Jehovah God saying, I have spoken it. They're not going to understand it, but when their industries fail, when the Nile itself fails them, and they're beginning to starve to death, they will understand that the Lord was behind this. Letter A, the Nile would be turned. It would be turned, verse 6. And they shall turn the rivers far away, and the brooks of defense shall be emptied and dried up, the reeds and flags shall wither. Number one, a thirsty prince. A thirsty prince. There's a couple explanations here for the rivers. When the land was in turmoil internally, 12 princes tried to exercise their powers in various ways. One such attempt was to dig channels, diverting the waters of the Nile away, leaving the land without a water supply. Number two, 
stagnant waters. This phrase could also be explained as the waters turning or growing stagnant. We would say they turned bad, making it incapable of sustaining fish in the typical agriculture that nourished the people of the region. Letter B, the Nile's industries would fail. Verse 7, the paper reads by the brooks, by the mouth of the brooks, and everything sown by the brooks shall wither, be driven away, and be no more. From the reeds that grew along the Nile, the Egyptians would make papyrus, an ancient form of paper. No longer would there be reeds to support their efforts. Number one, a lack of fish would lead to famine. That was one of their mainstays. Verse number eight, the fishers also shall mourn, and all they that cast angle into the brooks shall lament, and they, shall, and they that spread nets upon the waters shall languish. Notice the two kinds of fishing, casting angles or using fish hooks, and also taking nets and spreading nets, two kinds of fishing here. Because of the drought, there will be no fish. The fishing industry will fail, leaving a food mainstay off the market. Because of the widespread superstitions of the people, there were few animals that could be killed and eaten, a sentiment similar to that of India, who celebrate their sacred cows. Without fish, there would be a great famine. We have a picture at our home of, of uh, me holding up a trophy fish that I caught when I was visiting the kids down in South Carolina. We had a bobber and some fish and some worms and started catching a lot of these little tiny uh, bluegill. And I had a fish all about that long and I was holding it up as a trophy fish. Well, understand, they lived off a of fish in this area here. Number two, Egypt's fine linen producers would fail. Verse 9, Moreover, they that work in fine flax and they that weave networks shall be confounded. Fine flax refers to the fine linens that were woven so intricately in Egypt. They produced a fabric that was desired around the world. Without a raw product, there would be no linen. Their industry would collapse. 1 Kings 10.28, And Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt and linen yarn. The king's merchants received the linen yarn at a price. In Proverbs 7.16, I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works, with fine linen of Egypt. Ezekiel 27, verse 7, Fine linen with broidered work from Egypt was that which thou spreadest forth to be thy sail. Blue and purple from the isles of Elisha was that which covered thee. So one of the main industries of an income-producing uh, pr uh, product was linen, and they were not able to make it. Number three, fish hatcheries would be destroyed. Verse 10, and they shall be broken in the purposes thereof, all that make sluices, and ponds for fish. Without sufficient water, those that made fish containments and hatcheries would also fail. Interesting, in Exodus 7:19 it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Take thy rod, and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt. Notice, upon their streams, upon their rivers, 
upon their ponds, upon all their pools of water, that they may become blood, and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. As the river Nile overflowed its banks, it left many, many pools of water, and some of these were used to contain fish. They made hatcheries out of them, and they were famous, and here's Exodus' reference to these pools of water. Roman numeral three, an indictment against the young leadership of Egypt. Verse number 11, surely the princes of Zoan are fools. The counsel of the wise counselors of Pharaoh has become brutish. How say ye unto Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings? Zoan was likely used as one of the capitals of Egypt under the rule of the 12 princes. Zoan was the location of the miracles performed at the hand of Moses and Aaron before Egypt, or before Pharaoh. In Psalm 78, 12, marvelous things did he in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of Zoan. In profusely flattering their ruler, these princes of Zoan encouraged their king in projects that turned out to be destructive to the kingdom. Their counsel ended up to be foolish. The phrase, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings, likely refers to the priests who were of the right bloodline and boasted as such. It was what we call their legal pedigree. Letter A. God mocks the foolishness of Egypt's leaders. In verse 12 and 13, where are they? Where are thy wise men? And let them tell thee now, and let them know what the Lord of hosts hath purposed upon Egypt. The princes of Zoan are become fools. The princes of Noph are deceived. They have also seduced Egypt, even they that are the stay of the tribes thereof. Here God mocks the young leadership in Egypt, those so full of themselves and trying to take the reins of leadership. Zoan and Naf were names of two of the twelve capitals in Egypt at that time. Following the deceptive counsel of their diviners and astrologers, the princes passed along their flawed directives to their people. The counsel of the princes had been foolish, leading Egypt to a sound defeat. Letter B. God would send an erring spirit into their minds. Verse 14, the Lord hath mingled a perverse spirit in the midst of thereof, and they have caused Egypt to err in every work thereof, as a drunken man staggereth in his vomit. Here God would put a spirit of confusion in the minds of the Egyptians, causing them to fail in all of their endeavors. He likens them to a drunken man that wallows in his vomit. Isaiah 28, 7, but they also have erred through wine, and through strong drink are they out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness, so that there is no place clean. Number one, all income streams will cease. Verse 15, neither shall there be any work for Egypt, which the head or tail, 
branch or rush may do. There'd soon be no commerce trade in Egypt. God's judgments would eventually destroy every income stream for them. The reference to the head or the upper ruling class or to the tail or the lower class would all be in the same predicament. There'd be no work and thus no income. Isaiah 66, 24, And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Number two, Egypt will face a fearful time. In verse 16, In that day shall Egypt be like unto women, and it shall be afraid and fear because of the shaking of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he shaketh over it. Egypt at this time will become fearful and weakened. God likens their condition to that of women. He demonstrates his lack of fear of reprisal by the feminists. Their fear will be tied to judgment that God unleashes on the land as he shakes his hand over it. Isaiah eleven fifteen, And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river, and shall smite it in the seven streams, and make men go over dry shod. In Zechariah 2, 9, For behold, I will shake mine hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants. And ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me. Number three, Judah will be become part of Assyria's threat against Egypt. Verse 17, And the land of Judah shall be a terror unto Egypt. Every one that maketh mention thereof shall be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he hath determined against it. During Manasseh's reign, Judah became subject to Assyria. Egypt became one of Assyria's pursuits that would typically be driven through Judea. The fear of Judah was the concern that Assyria's army was attacking. In 2 Kings 23-29, In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up against the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. And King Josiah went against him, and he slew him at Megiddo when he had seen him. Roman numeral 4. Egypt will experience much Jewish influence. Verse 18. In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the land of Canaan and swear to the Lord of hosts. One shall be called the city of destruction. First bullet point, Hebrew in Egypt. This seems to look ahead to the day of the Lord, a day in which God's people will have a profound effect on the Gentile nations around them. For cities in Egypt to speak the language of Canaan or Hebrew and swear by the Lord of hosts, they would have to be greatly influenced by their Jewish neighbors. In Zephaniah 3.9, For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may call upon the name of the Lord, to serve Him with one consent. Second bullet point, worshiping the Son with a capital S-O-N. The city of destruction was known as Heliopolis. The ancient Egyptians worshipped the sun there. In the day of the Lord, they would worship the sun of righteousness. Letter A, 
Egypt will become home to monuments to Jehovah God. Verse 19, In that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. In the day of the Lord, Egypt will house an altar to Jehovah. It will also have a monument between Egypt and Israel, lifting the name of God of Israel. Neither of these events have yet taken place. So this is obvious, a look to the time where Jesus Christ rules and reigns. Isaiah 66, 23, And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. Letter B. Egypt will have a new deliverer. Verse 20, And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors. And he shall send them a Savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. In that day, that future day, the altar and the pillar as monuments to God will stand as reminders that Jehovah is king. As they find themselves in need, Egypt will no longer call to their false gods, but to the one true God for help. God, Jehovah God, will be their deliverer in that day. Psalm 50 and verse 15, And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Letter C. Egypt will learn of and respond to the Jehovah God. Verse 21. And the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it. The day of the Lord will bring the knowledge of God and His Son to, G to Egypt, and many will respond to that message. Many in Egypt will know the Lord as Savior in that day. They will worship Him and join the Jews in sacrifices, which will apparently be reinstated at some point in the new temple. Malachi 1.11, For from the rising of the sun, even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered into my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. Today, God's name is not great among the heathen. In the day of the Lord, when Jesus Christ rules and reigns, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess before His mighty name. Roman numeral 5, judgment must come, but so will God's mercy. So we haven't, we've been having a look to the future, the day of the Lord, the day of Jesus' reign. Verse 22, however, and the Lord shall smite Egypt. He shall smite and heal it, and they shall return even to the Lord, and he shall be entreated of them, and shall heal them. So he's been talking about the future events of the blessing of, of, of God, and, and how Egypt will turn to the Lord. Then he returns to the immediate. Egypt still has to be judged. Egypt will be judged, but in God's mercy they will be healed. The Lord will bring upon Egypt all the judgments that he had prophesied. However, he would also restore them after the judgment was over. After their chastening, their hearts would be repentant, leading them back to the Lord. In His mercy, 
he will welcome them and heal them. Isaiah 55, 7, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous men his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. We serve a merciful God. Letter A, unheard of cooperation during the day of the Lord. Verse 23, in that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian shall come into Egypt. And the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptian shall serve with the Assyrians. The day of the Lord will bring unifications among nations previously uncooperative. There'll be a working together between Egypt, Assyria, and Israel. Nothing like that exists today, but then they will build a superhighway connecting them. The land of Assyria would be that of Syria and Iraq. Letter B, an unheard of trilateral support system. Verse 24, in that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. These three nations, Israel, Egypt, and Assyria, will form an alliance of cooperation that has never existed. Israel will be a blessing to its surrounding nations, like a great tree overshadowing the land around it. Letter C, God will bless Israel's former enemies. Verse 25, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. During the millennium, God will bless Israel and overflow his blessings to these previously heathen nations of Egypt and Assyria. Romans 3.29 is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, Paul says. Roman numeral 6, details of the prophecy. Letter A, the timing of the prophecy. Isaiah 20 and verse 1, there's just a few, few verses in this chapter, so let's knock this one out quickly. Verse number 1, In the year that Tartan came unto Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and fought against Ashdod, and took it. The timing of this prophecy is tied to the year that the Assyrian commander, Tartan, captured the Philistine city of Ashdod. This Tartan is the one sent to Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18.17. And the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsaris and Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a great host against Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they were come up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is in the highway of the fuller's field. Letter B. Isaiah's humiliating commission. Verse 2. What God asked of his prophet. <laughs> Verse 2. At the same time, spake the Lord by Isaiah the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from off thy loins, and put off thy shoe from thy foot. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Number one, here's a visible lesson of shame. 
God used Isaiah as an object lesson to the people. It was to be a picture of shame and humiliation. He was asked to walk among the people naked as a sign against Egypt and Ethiopia. Culturally, in all likelihood, he was not completely naked, but removed his outer clothing. Number two, mourning in sackcloth. He had apparently been wearing sackcloth to symbolize God's impending judgment. Revelation 11.3, I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred three days clothed in sackcloth. Those who are desirous of doing the will of God and telling him we'll do whatever you want us to do, just, just use us. I believe Isaiah prayed that prayer and God asked him to walk in shame for three years. Letter C. Three years as a sign. Verse 3. And the Lord said, Like as my servant Isaiah hath walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and wonder upon Egypt and upon Ethiopia, God directed Isaiah to present himself such for three years. The timing was probably indicative of when their judgment would fall, likely in three years from that time. Letter D. A cruel march to Assyria. Verse 4. So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians prisoners and the Ethiopians captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, even with their buttocks uncovered, to the shame of Egypt. Assyria's king would cruelly and forcefully march the Egyptian and Ethiopian captives back to Assyria. Though Isaiah was likely clothed enough to maintain his modesty, these captives were not afforded the same mercy. Isaiah 19.4 And the Egyptians will I give over into the hand of a cruel lord, and a fierce king shall rule over them, saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts. And then letter E. The nation's protectors will be destroyed. Verse 5 and 6. And they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and of Egypt, their glory. And the inhabitant of this isle shall say in that day, Behold, such is our expectation. Whither we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And how shall we escape? The nations of Egypt and Ethiopia, the surrounding nations had looked to for safety and deliverance from Assyria's advances, were now destroyed themselves. Judah had shown signs of relying on Egypt. God gave Hezekiah a message in 2 Kings 18, 20, and 21. Thou sayest, but they are but vain words, I have counsel and strength for the war. Now on whom dost thou trust, that thou rebellest against me? Now, behold, thou trustest upon the staff of his bruised reed, even upon Egypt, on which if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, unto all that trust on him. This evening we've seen God's judgment of doom upon Egypt. But what is so fascinating to me is uh, Egypt 
pushed God and pushed God and pushed God. They were the heathen, wicked nation that did not believe in God. They worshiped false gods. But in God's mercy, he was willing to look to the future, not only look to it, but tell Isaiah in his prophecy that there would come a time where in his incredible mercy, he would be their God and they would turn to him and he would deliver them. We serve a wonderfully merciful God. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for your love and your blessing and thank you for these chapters in Isaiah. Lord, it's overwhelming sometimes reading of your fierce wrath and what was accomplished by looking back in history at these nations that you had prophesied judgment against. Dear Lord, I'm grateful that you are our God. I'm grateful, Lord, for your working in our hearts and bringing us to submission. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to submit our hearts to you completely and that you'll use us, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you and thank you for the time.